episode of Residents and Fellows Audio Corner. This is Shobhana Rajan, staff anesthesiologist from the Cleveland Clinic, and on behalf of the Education Committee of the SNAC, we extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Lashmi Venkatraguvan, who is Associate Professor of Anesthesiology at the University of Toronto. He is also the Director of Neuroanesthesia and the Program Director of the Neuroanesthesia Fellowship at Toronto Western Hospital. Today, he is going to discuss with us this very interesting topic, which is anesthesia for deep brain stimulator placement. Dr. Venkat's clinical interests include outpatient neurosurgery, functional neurosurgery such as epilepsy, DBS, and intracranial bypass procedures. His current research activities include development of brain stress tests to identify patients at risk for stroke and chronic cerebral ischemia. This sounds like a fantastic idea. He has approximately 75 peer-reviewed publications, 10 book chapters, and research funding of a phenomenal amount of 400,000 US dollars. We are very fortunate to have you with us today, Dr. Venkat. Uh, thank you, Shobana. It's a great pleasure for me here as well. So our first question to you today is, what are the indications for a deep brain stimulator placement? Um, the deep brain stimulators, uh, the initial indication, it started off for uh, movement disorders, uh, which includes the essential tremor, uh, Parkinson's disease, and the dystonia. And uh, so recently, the indication has been expanded to include other uh, neuropsychiatric conditions, uh, including uh, depression, obsessive compulsive disorders, as well as the anorexia nervosa. The other commonly used indications uh, include uh, chronic pain and as well as uh, epilepsy. Sure. So how does DBS placement help these patients with these disease processes? So uh, the, the, the main indication for DBS is, uh, is to control the patient's symptom and, uh, and especially uh, also to minimize the side effects from the medical therapy. So the deep brain stimulator does not uh, cure the disease, so it just uh, uh, gives you the symptom control. The, exactly how the deep brain stimulation works uh, is not very clear, uh, but it has been believed that is the, the DBS uh, does have both excitatory and inhibitory effect both at the local site as well as in the whole uh, neuronal network as well. So the effect depends upon uh, the target nucleus which is uh, actually stimulated. For example, in Parkinson's disease and essential tremors, and uh, one of the target nucleus stimulated is uh, called a subthalamic nucleus, otherwise STN. So when you uh, stimulate the STN, which causes uh, hyperpolarization, in other words, is a jamming of a neuronal uh, function, which results in inhibition of activity and makes your symptoms better. Sure. So you did mention subthalamic nucleus, but in general, what deep brain nuclei do they target and why do they choose one particular set of nuclei over the other? Is this something to do with the symptoms of the patient? Yes, exactly. So the target nuclei depends upon the uh, the symptom of the patient. And for example, Parkinson's disease, uh, depending upon the symptom, uh, they may use either a subthalamic nucleus. And the second commonly used uh, target nucleus for Parkinson's disease is called as a globus pallidus internus, otherwise called a GPI, uh, which is indicated if uh, patient symptoms predominantly dystonic symptoms. And for example, uh, if they're 
predominant symptom is tremors, they may use another target called as the uh, ventral intermediate nucleus of thalamus, otherwise called as the VIM, V-I-M. And similarly, for a psychiatric conditions, uh, they sometimes use uh, uh, subgenual cortex, or they may use uh, 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 they, 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 may, they may use uh, ventral internal capsule. That the other indications uh, ta indicated targets uh, for these conditions. So, so how is this procedure done? Is it like a craniotomy, or is it just a burr hole? I've heard that the procedure is done in two stages. Could you please make could you please explain to us? Yes. Uh, so the procedure is done as a two stages uh, because the, the DBS system consists of an intracranial electrode and an external uh, battery pack, which is usually inserted uh, on the right or left sided, uh, similar to a pacemaker uh, below the clavicle. And uh, so the, the first part of the surgery usually involves the insertion of the electrodes into the target nuclei. And then the second part is uh, connecting the electrodes uh, uh, through an external cable which is tunneled on the side of their neck uh, connecting back into the uh, the pulse generator or a battery pack so the first part of the procedure is uh, usually uh, does involve uh, localization of the electrodes and uh, once we once they confirm the location of the target nuclei they will insert the electrodes in and so it is usually done with a, a burr hole, uh, one on either side, and through which the electrodes is inserted into the target nuclei. I see. So would the head be on pins for this procedure? What are the anesthetic considerations in a patient undergoing a DBS placement? Yes, the patient will be the one of the methods of uh, localizing the target nucleus because this this is the most important part of the surgery is that is the successful localization of the nucleus uh, so that the uh, uh, the stimulation of that particular nuclear causes a clinical benefit. So in order to localize the target nuclei, uh, they need to they use the various methods uh, to uh, uh, confirm the location. One of the method is using a stereotactic frame. Uh, called as the Lexel frame or uh, Roberts-Wells frame. And uh, with the frame on, patient often undergoes an imaging, either an MRI or a CT scan, to get a three-dimensional structure of the basal ganglia uh, so that they exactly know where, where is the target nuclei. In addition to that, during the surgery, they use uh, uh, recording from the surface of the brain as well as from the deeper structures of the brain. And so you can confirm where exactly the target nucleus because different part of the brain have uh, uh, different uh, neuronal activity and thirdly once they know that they are in the target nuclei they do the stimulation testing to make sure that the patient symptoms get better at the same time the, the it does not cause uh, side effects so because of this one so the main considerations for anesthesia is the uh, different locations of the procedure and as well as the the need for an awake cooperative patients for the stimulation testing and microelectro recording and finally the other major considerations for anesthesia is the disease process itself for example patient with movement disorders like parkinson's disease they have other coexisting symptoms like a laryngeal and pharyngeal dysfunction they are at risk for aspiration their movement makes them very difficult for monitoring and as well as for intravenous access may come off and for example patient with dystonia, they may have a, a difficult uh, in airway management as well.
So uh, you say that most of the time you do these cases awake and with the patient awake. But I've heard that some centers do the whole procedure under general anesthesia. So what are the pros and cons of doing this under GA? Yeah, uh, excellent question. The traditionally, the deep brain stimulation, uh, because as I already mentioned, that is the, the success depends upon the uh, accurate localization of the target nuclei because they are very small. They are a few millimeters in uh, diameter and they are quite deep. So they need to use uh, multiple methods of uh, localizing it. And one of the most important method is the intraoperative microelectro recording as well as the stimulation testing. And since the anesthetic agents all causes a cortical suppression, and uh, so it is it makes it very difficult to record with the with the general anesthesia and as well as uh, we cannot test the patient uh, if they have a general anesthetic so that is why this procedure is traditionally done as an uh, awake with a conscious sedation and now with uh, better imaging techniques uh, including some centers started doing these procedures under intraoperative MR guidance and that makes it uh, uh, makes it that you don't really need to have a awake patient for intraoperative testing uh, because the both the targeting of the nuclei as well as the confirmation of the location of the electrode can be done with the intraoperative MR guidance. So that is why more centers are switching towards uh, general anesthesia. Sure. Even at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, some of our patients are done with the, in the MRI suite and those situations we do give a general anesthesia. Yeah. So, so that... That this, so that is one of the uh, if you, if if the procedure is done under an MR suite, then the added consideration of the MRI safety with the anesthetic equipment just need to be considered. That's right. Okay. So you did mention about the stereotactic frame being placed. So how would we manage the airway with the stereotactic frame in situ? Yeah, if the patient is needing a general anesthetic, they usually they give the general anesthetic first and then they have a stereotactic frame because the stereotactic uh, frame makes the uh, access to the airway very difficult. Especially some of the frames may have a, one of the bar which goes in front of the nose, or sometimes even pass through the mouth, so it is going to be very difficult to access the airway. Uh, so during the procedure, so if you really need to secure an airway in an emergency uh, uh, reasons, uh, you, the one of the option is to insert a laryngeal mask in. Okay, and uh, otherwise, uh, so it's one of the important consideration for the trainees is that is even doing a deep brain stimulation cases, we need to be aware that is the airway is going to be difficult. So we need to make sure that is the there is a difficult airway caught and especially the uh, uh, fiber optic is uh, uh, available nearby. Sure. So this would be a difficult situation if we had to secure the airway at this point of time, I suppose. Yes. So, mm -hmm. so are there any other uh, contraindications that we need to be aware of? For example, if a patient is morbidly obese or has obstructive sleep apnea, is it still okay to go ahead or should we decline to do this procedure? Yeah, so it is a really important question because these procedures are becoming more and more common and a wide variety of patients being selected uh, for these procedures. 
So one of the important considerations is the careful selection of the patients because these procedures can be pretty long and uh, they they need to be awake and cooperative for the testing part of uh, uh, for the for the long period of time so the patient selection is really really important and in addition to that is the, with a difficult airway in mind if you have a patient with morbidly obese or if patients have a untreated or undiagnosed uh, sleep apnea they do pose uh, additional challenges uh, especially if they are sedated uh, with uh, limited access to the airway so there is there are no absolute contraindication except for uh, bleeding uh, uh, patients on uh, anticoagulation or patient is not cooperative but the morbid obesity and OSAs are, they are all kind of uh, uh, are added a uh, relative contraindications depending upon the individual patients sure so what medications do you commonly use for the awake phase and why um so as the, as the anesthesiologists, we know that we have a lot of uh, choices for conscious sedations uh, because we have benzodiazepines, we have uh, opioids, uh, we have propofol, we all we have uh, dexmedetomidine. So there are a variety of choices. But the choice for this procedure uh, depends upon because you need to remember they need to record from the surface of the brain. And as well as that, we need to do a stimulation testing of it. So any anesthetic agent we need to use, we want to make sure that, that they have a very least amount of effect on the neuronal discharges uh, so that the, it can facilitate the recording uh, from the brain. And uh, the benzodiazepines uh, does have a, a significant amount of effect on uh, abolishing the microelectro recordings. And uh, uh, the GABA energy drugs, uh, propofol, also makes it uh, difficult to record uh, activities from the brain. Uh, it is uh, dependent on the dose. So either a low-dose uh, propofol with an uh, opioid uh, such as uh, remifentanil or uh, dexmedetomidine because they don't have a garbanagic effect uh, are the ideal choices for uh, these procedures. Again, it needs to be tailored to, tailored to the individual patient. Sure. So with the dexmedetomidine, do you normally do a bolus and then an infusion? Is that how do you run it? Um, so the dexmedetomidine, again, as I said, is that is it, it needs to be it needs to be titrated to the individual patient. And uh, some of the patients uh, with the Parkinson's disease or a dystonia, they can be quite frail. And uh, so we probably we avoid a bolus in bolusing of these patients, or we may use a smaller bolus, maybe 0.5 milligram per kilogram bolus and uh, use, otherwise if the patient is uh, otherwise no major comorbidities we usually do a one milligram per kilogram bolus followed by we started with 0.5 to 0.6 mics per kilogram per minute. Sure. So what monitoring do you use for these patients? Do you commonly place an art line on these patients? Um, the the monitoring is uh, depends entirely on the individual patient as well as the institutional preferences. And in general, and in most centers, uh, in addition to the standard uh, monitoring of uh, the uh, non-invasive blood pressure, uh, ECG, capnography, and uh, pulse oximetry, the invasive monitoring, especially arterial line, is indicated if the patient has a significant comorbidity or uh, non-invasive blood pressure is very difficult to work uh, because of the significant uh, movement. And so in that case, the arterial line is uh, easier uh, for a... Uh, for, uh, uh, managing the blood pressure intraoperatively.
Sure. At our hospital, the surgeons ask us to keep the blood pressure low, preferably under 140 or 130 millimeters of mercury during the awake phase. So how do you normally manage the blood pressure during this procedure? Is this important? Yes, this is uh, this is really important uh, because uh, one of the uh, uh, feared complications during the procedure is an intracerebral hemorrhage, and uh, because the in order to uh, target the nuclei, sometimes they may have to go uh, multiple uh, penetrations to reach the target, and uh, mm-hmm. with the multiple penetrations, the risk of intracerebral hemorrhage goes up if the patient's blood pressure is high. In addition, these patients are awake, they are uh, drug off state, they are, they are holding off their Parkinson's medication, so they are very anxious, so their blood pressure tends to be very high. So generally, it is considered that is the, the blood pressure target of less than 140 millimeters of mercury systolic and uh, is, the, is the ideal blood pressure. Otherwise, uh, the, the less than 20% of their uh, preoperative blood pressure is uh, considered as a target uh, for uh, treating uh, the blood pressure. Uh, commonly used agents varies between the centers. Um, predominantly, they use either uh, labetalol or hydralazine. And a lot of centers in U.S. they use uh, nicardipine and uh, clavidipine now as a choice for uh, blood pressure control. As I said, this is all uh, individual uh, institutional preferences. But the target is usually 140 millimeters of mercury systolic. So uh, regarding the kind of medications to use to control blood pressure, is it okay to use beta blockers in patients with tremor? Because I've seen some neurosurgeons who prefer to tell us not to use beta blockers. Is that a concern? Um, yes, that is, an, um, because uh, some, sometimes uh, the, the, uh, the beta blockers do interfere with the tremor, especially when they, when they want to do a simulation testing of these patients, and uh, we don't want to have an, any conflict with the other drugs which, uh, which uh, makes a patient's symptom change. Uh, so that is right. one of the reasons is the beta blocker is avoided. And uh, mm. the, uh, the most commonly used beta blocker is a propanolol for the tremor because it crosses okay. a blood-brain barrier. Whereas the, most of the uh, beta blockers we use, they do not cross a blood-brain barrier. So they, they, some, they probably won't have a much of the effect, especially labetalol. We, we very rarely see any effect on tremor with labetalol. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. So what are the complications that could happen? You did mention some of them, but in general, how should we try and circumvent these? Yes. Um, so the complications are though rare, and if it happens, some of the complications may may lead to uh, catastrophic uh, consequences. From the anesthesia-wise, the most important, uh, most worrisome complication is an airway-related complications. As I already mentioned, is that is the, these patients are all on stereotactic frame, and uh, the the frame is attached to the uh, operating table. As say the duration of the surgery uh, is uh, is a long duration, so they, sometimes they slide down on the bed with the head fixed to the operating table, so they obstruct the airway. In addition, there is the airway obstruction maybe secondary to a neurological event like a seizure or an intracerebral hemorrhage, and uh, so this is the one which needs an emergency airway management, which we already talked about. And so the preparation is the key, so we need to make sure that the laryngeal mask and the difficult airway cart is available nearby. 
the other complications, uh, in another catastrophic complication is the venous air embolism because these patients are often in a semi-sitting position or sitting up position, so especially during a, a bar hole, uh, there is a risk of a venous air embolism. And uh, non, uh, the surgical related complications include the intracerebral hemorrhage and the seizures, especially more so if the patient is, uh, if the indication for DBS is uh, uh, epilepsy, then there is a risk of perioperative seizures very high. Sure. So thank you so much for this enlightening conversation and excellent discussion, Dr. Venkat. Uh, thank you very much, too, for inviting me for this uh, wonderful uh, podcast. Thank you. Thank you.